me to Matthew chapter 13. We'll finish this chapter this morning as we look at verses 44 through 58. We'll see what the greatest treasure is. And as we look at this text, we'll see this morning that if you find Jesus, you find the greatest treasure. Find Jesus and you find the greatest treasure. I'll begin reading in verse 44. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Well, it was in 1857 that an ocean liner, really a steamship, traveled from the gold fields in California around Southern America through and then was sailing up the eastern seaboard and the SS Central America sank off the coast of South Carolina. Now that day, some 425 sailors, merchants, and people went down on this ship. But the reason that this ship kind of lives in infamy is because on that day, over three tons of treasure sank as well. And it sat there some 8,000 feet below the bottom of this, beneath the surface of the sea for 130 years. Until a man by the name of Tommy Thompson became obsessed with the idea of trying to recover this lost treasure. So Tommy Thompson recruited 160 investors to basically financially back him in search of this treasure. And he spent years developing the technology to do this until he invented a robot named Nemo. Now Nemo can explore further, further beneath the ocean than any robot invented to this time. And so he began with his investors to pursue this lost treasure. And as Nemo began digging around there on the bottom of the ocean, it dug up some old 19th century gold coins, and they knew they were at the right spot. And then it pulled up gold bars, bars that were 15 times bigger than any gold bar they'd ever found from California before. This treasure was unimaginable. It was just huge. And as they began exploring, they realized they probably discovered like 5% of what was down there. It's estimated that at the bottom of the sea was a treasure worth over $400 million in gold. And so as Tommy Thompson began exploring this and looking for this, suddenly he disappears. Now he's got 160 people who are very interested in what he found. But for two years, Tommy Thompson led investigators on a brilliant chase. They said he was one of the most brilliant uh, evaders uh, of authorities that, had, that, that, that they'd ever found. 
He had the money to invest in his escape, but one day they found him in kind of a mid-grade hotel in Florida there with his girlfriend. And for, for then, Tommy Thompson began rotting in prison as they tried to get him to tell where the treasure was, but Tommy wouldn't tell where the treasure was. And so this undiscovered treasure has now been either discovered or distributed somewhere, but Tommy Thompson risked his very life to hide the whereabouts of this treasure. Now, why would someone invest that kind of energy, that kind of zeal, that kind of obsession in the pursuit of a treasure? Well, it's kind of the question that Jesus puts before us today as well. Before we get to the treasure itself, I want to start with the warning, and it's a warning that we see in verses 47 through 50. Well, I'm not much of a fisherman. In fact, you could say I'm not really a fisherman at all. But Jesus has some disciples who are expert fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, John made their living by fishing. In fact, in John 21, after Jesus has died, he's risen, the disciples have sort of forgotten their calling. They've forgotten their mission, and they're out on the sea fishing for fish instead of fishing for men, what Jesus had called them to do. And as they're out there fishing, they see someone, they're unable to catch anything, and then this person tells them, well, you're not catching anything, throw your net on the other side. And do you remember the story? They throw it over, and the net becomes so full of fish that they literally cannot lift it into the boat. And they're like, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one speaking to us. Well, the net that we see here in verse 47 when Jesus talks about fishermen casting a net is a drag net. It's a net that sometimes would be used from the shore. You'd have a bunch of men kind of lined up on either side. Or sometimes you'd haul it between uh, two boats. And in doing this, you'd drag it along the ocean floor and you'd pull up literally everything that came in. So you'd hopefully, if there were fish there, you'd catch some good fish. But you'd catch a bunch of, you know, you wouldn't catch old tires, but I don't know, first century wooden you know, chariot wheels or something. You, you pull up a bunch of junk along with the bat. And so Jesus talks about this process. They sift through everything to get rid of the, the bad stuff and find the good. Well, the point of this parable is similar to what we saw in the parable of the weeds and the wheats. Verse 49, at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, if you remember the weeds and the wheat, there are weeds that look like wheat, and at the end of all things, uh, the angels are going to come out, and they're going to they're sort of sort this out. And what Jesus is saying here is that there are people who are sort of part of the, the visible net, the catch of Christianity, but the fruit of their lives, like the fruit of the wheat, doesn't demonstrate true faith in Christ. So we often think of judgment you know, for those outside the church, those who just very visibly don't know God. But Jesus is speaking here of a particular group of people who identify themselves with Christianity, with this visible net, this visible catch of fish, but whose lives in the end don't bear evidence of true faith in Christ. As we've seen, we don't have to get out our our fake detectors because Jesus is going to take care of these. He's going to sort this all out. But don't miss the strength of this warning. There are people in churches who will find themselves at the end thrown into the fire. In other words, if you claim faith in Christ or at some level identify with him, but show no fruit, show no evidence that Christ actually lives in you, that Christ is changing you from the inside out, then these words ought to at least make us pause and look. Or if you associate Christ primarily with a set of external behaviors, living in a certain way, attending church, I don't know, a certain set of things that you do and a certain set of things that you don't, but you miss the heart of what it means to have a true relationship with God through faith in Christ, A life of humility before God, with compassion, mercy, grace, frustration at other people's sin rather than continual repentance over my sin. You may be missing what it means to know Jesus. 
If those who would know you best would say that your life is more characterized by spiritual pride than it is by the humility of Christ. If those who would say you have the spiritual gift of complaining and criticism and yet don't know true repentance, it's possible that God hasn't changed your heart. Galatians 5 talks about fruit. And it tells us that the works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, and drunkenness. Now we're all like, oh yeah, we got that. We know that's bad. Even if we do it, we know it's bad. But he also lists there these evidences. The works of the flesh are hostility, quarreling, jealousy, bursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, and things like these. And so the question for us is, does our fruit look more like that, or does it look more like the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, or quarreling, division, and selfish ambition. So there's a strong warning here, but now we moved to this, to another conversation between Jesus and his disciples as he seeks to help them understand. I mean, a good teacher not only teaches, but tries to see, you know, do my students actually understand what I'm saying. So in verse 51, Jesus takes time to ask, have you understood these things? And they said to him, yes. Now, Jesus does a lot of teaching in this chapter, and this is the only time where we see them explicitly that they they get it. Now, don't worry, there are plenty of times between now and the end of Jesus' life where they're going to be hard-headed and not get it. But on this day, they seem to get what he's saying. Well, then Jesus tells them about kind of an unusual scribe in verse 52. He says, this scribe has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you know scribes, they're trained to do what? They're trained to meticulously know scripture, copy scripture, and teach scripture. But this training that he says here is literally to disciple. So what he's saying is this scribe has been made, has has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this in itself is pretty shocking. Because if you know scribes, as a group, they're very, very opposed to what Jesus has to say. But this scribe is different. This scribe gets it. God opens his eyes and becomes a follower of Jesus. Well, one aspect of being a scribe is certainly copying the scripture. But another aspect is also teaching. They're the experts in the law, and they teach other people what the law means. I mean, they know the Old Testament better than anyone else. So who better than these scribes to teach the Old Testament? They spend their life in it, and then they take what they know, and then they teach others. This scribe is genuinely devoted to scripture. Now the scribes as a group oppose Jesus out of party loyalty because he threatens their influence. So kind of they're the authority, 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 the authoritative teachers and they come in and they teach and they expect everyone to listen to them. Well now there's this new teacher. And as Matthew says, he teaches with authority. He threatens their authority. But this scribe, he's different. Jesus compares him in verse 52 to a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The word treasure is simply, it's, it's a storage place for his valuables. It could be a box, a pantry, a place in the backyard, we don't know, but it's a place where he buries his, his treasure. And this man, this, this house, the master of this house has some old treasure and some new treasure. I mean, he has some vintage vinyl records and he has an iPhone. And he knows both of those are really valuable. And so he values both the old and the new. The scribes as a class value the vintage and reject the new out of their blindness. They value the old covenant and yet they miss the message, the new covenant that Jesus brings because they're blind to it. So the error of the scribes is in rejecting the new out of blind legalism in loyalty to the old. 
But today, a lot of people are tempted to do the opposite. Today, some people reject the old out of blindness because of the new. Sort of unhitch our Christianity from the Old Testament. And yet Jesus says that the disciple of his kingdom values what is new and what is old. You see, the person who understands the gospel of the kingdom understands that our first loyalty is not to a culture, a set of rules, or a set of traditions, but to a person, a relationship with that person in faith. And this person doesn't set aside the Old Testament, he fulfills it. I mean, the entire word of God points to Jesus. The law points us to the impossibility of being good. The fact that we need a sacrifice for our sin. We need a perfect priest. And Jesus arrives and says, I'm here. The perfect priest is here. The books of history in the Old Testament show us of God's people looking over and over and over again for the perfect leader, the perfect judge, someone to lead them. And Jesus comes and the perfect king is here. We get to the books of the prophets. And the prophets preach the truth, a message of repentance and faith to God's people. But they preach looking for the perfect prophet, the one who will fully and finally bring God's word to God's people. And Jesus arrives and says, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king is here. The whole Bible points to this Jesus. So Jesus warns of judgment, but at the same time, he also offers a way of deliverance from this same judgment. Anyone who follows Jesus the king becomes a citizen of his kingdom. And so like the scribes, our, our allegiance must be transformed from a loyalty to ourselves, a loyalty to a set of traditions or expectations, to a commitment to follow Jesus, his agenda, and his priorities. So we embrace all of Scripture and knowing Jesus in all of Scripture. And so what does this tell us? You cannot know Jesus if you don't know his word. I mean, Jesus has revealed himself to us in this book. And not just in a few pages, not just in, in four Gospels here, but in the entire Word of God, it all points to Jesus Christ. It all prepares us for him, reveals his life to us, or explains how we relate to him rightly. And we cannot know Jesus apart from knowing his Word. I mean, to follow the, the logic here, you can't treasure Jesus if you don't treasure his words. This has been, uh, we've got our 13th anniversary coming up this summer. And if I would say, that, you know, being married changes you in a lot of ways. But one thing has changed for me is how often I wash my hands. Now, I was, uh, I was raised, I was one of nine kids. And I, I I'm not saying it never happened. I don't remember ever being told to wash my hands. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't. I just don't remember it happening. It wasn't like, you know, kind of an A-level. You know, I think probably my mom was fighting for survival. And so, like, you know, hand-washing was a bonus. You know, that's like, that's the cherry on top. That's not the cake, you know. It's, it's, it's the extra. But I've realized that if I'm going to have a healthy, happy, loving marriage, it's important. Hand-washing is important to me, and it will be important to my children. It's a value in our house. Now, now you say, now, how did you pick up on that? Well, I mean, I wasn't a, a, a filthy person before, but I realized it's important to my wife, and it's going to be important to me. Because... She's important to me. What's important to her is important to me. If I want to have a good relationship with her, I'm like, hey, guys, it's time to eat. Wash your hands before you eat. We do that now. That's, that's, a, that's a family value, washing hands before we eat. Well, how did that become my value? That became my value because of a commitment and love to a person. And ultimately, we know, like, I'm not really loving that person if I'm not valuing what she's valuing. If I'm not treasuring what she treasures, if I'm not at some level pursuing what's important to her. 
And it's the same way in our relationship with God. People who love Jesus love Jesus' words. They want to know what's important to Jesus. They want to know what Jesus values, what Jesus treasures, what, what are his priorities. What do our time and commitment say about our love for the God of this book? One of the great testimonies of cable news, Netflix, and social media at the end of time will be to show that our lack of commitment to God and his word was not a lack of time. It's a lack of valuing what Jesus values. Brothers and sisters, we must be people of the word, people devoted to the word, a church governed by and driven by the word. We know Jesus, the living word, through God's written word. But not everyone will understand who Jesus is, and we see this in verses 53 to 58 as some reject Jesus. Jesus returns home. He goes back to the town where he grew up. By this time, there are hundreds, possibly thousands of eyewitnesses to Jesus' power. Nazareth is nowheresville. It makes Walterboro look like a metropolis. I mean, it's in the middle of nowhere. In fact, you don't really even see it in historical records until centuries after Jesus. I mean, the biggest estimates of this town say there might have been 500 people there. I mean, it's nothing and nowhere. It's backwater. Well, Jesus goes back home to this nowhere town in the middle of nowhere, and as was his custom, he goes to the synagogue to teach. Well, as he begins to teach, verse 54 tells us people are amazed. They're astonished. You can almost hear their skepticism in their voices. They say, where did this man get these things? It's sort of like you're walking along, and, uh, and our little guy, a three-year-old, walks up to me, and he's got a $50 bill in his hand. Now, it's possible that if I searched your wallets here this morning, I might find some $50 bills, but I'm not going to find one in his pocket unless he got it from somewhere. And I'm like, where did this kid get this? And that's what they're asking, like, where did this carpenter's son get this kind of knowledge? Where did he get this kind of teaching? These people simply can't believe that this is, this is the Jesus we've known our entire life. And the first reason they can't believe it is because of Jesus' vocation. He's a carpenter's son. I mean, carpenters aren't known for their brilliant rhetorical skills, at least not in this day. I mean, we know from Scripture that Mary's husband, Joseph, is, is a kind man, a good man. But he's not an expert in the law. He's not a scribe. He's not a rabbi. Yet Jesus teaches better than any rabbi they've ever heard. He's the best teacher they've ever heard, and they can't believe it. Well, because Jesus' occupation doesn't qualify him to teach, they determine he can't teach. But they also reject him because of his family. I mean, these people know Jesus. They know his first name, and they know all his brothers and sisters by name. They start listing him here. I mean, the people of Nazareth, they're like a small southern town. Everyone knows everyone. Everyone's related to everyone. And not only that, they know your granddaddy and your great-granddaddy. They know everyone. Their families are interconnected. They probably know everyone his aunts and uncles have married. And so the town's familiarity with Jesus, an assumption that they understand who he is, leads them to prejudice against him and ultimately to reject him. And this is because familiarity breeds contempt. Verse 57 tells us not only were they shocked, they took offense at him. Not at his teaching, at him. That he should dare to be the one to tell them what to do. So Jesus responds with a fairly well-known proverb in Jewish and Greek culture. Verse 57, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. You see, their familiarity with Jesus leads them to reject him. 
Have you ever noticed that sometimes the people who are most violently opposed to Christianity are those who once knew it best? Those who grew up in the church, who grew up knowing the teachings of the word, sometimes familiarity with the Bible, and sometimes familiarity with those who claim to follow the Bible leads people to reject Jesus. Because one thing you notice is that, you know, you might, it might be true that God's perfect, but you look around and his people aren't. And as you become acquainted with all the ways that God's people fall short in your expectations and, and what they should be, it's easy to reject Jesus because his followers are not that great. Sometimes those who've known Jesus the longest reject him the quickest. Perhaps you know friends like this, people who grew up claiming Jesus, seeming to know Jesus, and now they're adamantly opposed to Scripture and the church. See, familiarity breeds contempt, and this can be true for us in the church, too. And gathering with the church is one of the most important things that anyone can do, and yet it's no guarantee that you actually understand and know Jesus. God created this world good, but in Genesis 3, sin entered the world, and since that moment, brokenness and rebellion have characterized our relationships with each other, our relationships with government, our relationships with our parents, our relationships with God himself. And this brokenness digs its way down into all of society. And yet God teaches us he judges every sin. For us, it's a way of life, and so it becomes a normal expectation. And yet God is holy and cannot withstand the presence of sin, and so must judge sin. Every sin will be judged, either in Jesus' sacrifice or in us. Only those who come to God by faith are delivered from this judgment. And sometimes being familiar with this truth can blind us to the, to the reality of what it means to have a changed heart. And so this morning, if you feel the Spirit of God at work in your heart, moving you toward Jesus, would you follow that urging? Would you trust Jesus? Would you cry out to him as your only hope from rescue from this judgment? Well, verse 58 adds that not only did they reject Jesus, their unbelief limited his ministry. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus can do anything. He can save anyone. He is able to save to the uttermost all who believe. He can answer any prayer. And yet, in the providence of God, our relationship with him is conditioned on faith. But even when we come to him with just a little bit of faith, with halting fear, doubt, a cry of weak faith is enough to save even the most desperate sinner. And so we move from this rejection back to the treasure, back to where we started. Well, imagine that you have at least a semi-casual interest in real estate. And you enjoy driving around West Ashley and looking up maybe on your phone or online some apps or something, the, the, the home values of, of places you drive by. And one day you're driving by this place and it's just a, you know, it's like an 800 square foot shack and it's for sale for $400,000 and you're like, this is crazy. But you get out and, and you, begin, you begin looking at, at this property. And the house is just as bad as it looks from the outside. You walk around, you're kind of snooping around. But as you're, as you're uh, trudging through the backyard, suddenly your, your foot hits something and it's metal. You kind of, you get down, you begin to scrape away at the edge and you realize there's a box here. Not only that, it's a big box. And, and you pry open the lid of this box and inside are giant gold bars. You found Tommy Thompson's treasure. He hid it in the backyard of this house. You quickly bury the box, and suddenly this $400,000 house looks like a steal, doesn't it? 
And you're like, you'll do anything. You'll sell your house, you'll sell your car to find this house because in the back of this house is the treasure. Well, Jesus tells two parables in verses 44 to 46 to illustrate this point. Man's walking by an ordinary field and discovers that in the middle of this very ordinary field is an unimaginable treasure. So he quickly goes home, collects everything, and sells it to give everything he has to get that field. Looks crazy, but he knows something that you don't know. There's a valuable treasure in this field. Well, it's almost 15 years ago now that a Filipino fisherman went out fishing, and when he was fishing, he dragged up a pearl that's 26 inches long. By far the most valuable pearl in history. In fact, this pearl is... 75 pounds, estimated at $100 million in value. Well, the fisherman really had no idea of what he had. He hid it under his bed as a good luck charm. It wasn't until his house burned down that officials found it there in the house. The house burned, but the pearl survived. Well, the second guy we find here is a pearl merchant. He's someone, he goes and he finds the pearl that's greater than any other pearl of great value. And he finds this pearl to beat all pearls, and he sells everything he has to obtain this one pearl. The point here is pretty clear, isn't it? It looks absolutely insane to get rid of everything so you can have one thing. That is insane unless that one thing is worth more than everything else. That's Jesus' point. A relationship with Jesus surpasses the value of everything else that you could possibly have. It is worth leaving everything to pursue that one thing. We tend to be more like the man who discovers the treasure. We're like, we find the gold bars there in the backyard. We're like, all right, I'm getting rid of everything. And we go home and we're collecting our stuff. And then we're, I don't know, we we find our coffee pot. And we're like, man, I I had a lot of good cups of coffee from that coffee pot. And then we look over at our old recliner, and we're like, man, I read my kids some nice stories on that old recliner. I'm going to miss that recliner. And we get distracted, and, and suddenly, you know, we have betrayed the treasure for collection of old stuff. Stuff that's okay, but it's not the treasure. It's not the treasure that you can find in this world. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is worth it. He's more valuable than any treasure, any pearl, any collection of things that you could find in this world. If following Jesus were to cost you everything, yet you still had Jesus, it would be more than worth it. The value of knowing Jesus far surpasses anything else that you could possibly imagine. Being consumed with a career, being consumed with hobbies, pursuing sin, pornography, drunkenness, anything, it isn't worth it. As Jesus says in Matthew 16, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world? And lose his soul. What if, instead of being consumed with advancing a career, or social standing, or being consumed with the latest and greatest movie, game, car, whatever, we pursued a growing relationship with Jesus Christ with the same zeal, with greater zeal than we pursue these things. What if we said with Paul, whatever gain I had, whatever it is, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. He is worth it. There is no greater treasure. Will you devote yourself to knowing him? Pursuing him? Leaving whatever distracts you from your relationship with him. He is the greatest treasure.
Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.